morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, especially our guests, those of you who are with us for the first time or maybe have been, been here for a little bit but have yet to join us. Sure are happy you decided to make us your church home for an hour today. Let me be the latest to say Merry Christmas in this Christmas season. I trust that the Holy Spirit will meet you both in your home and your workplace and every place you go in an accentuated way so that you can be a better witness to those who do not know him. Turn with me over to the book of Luke. We're going to suspend our series on the book of Jude and we're going to start our Christmas series. Book of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. We're going to look at verses 36 through 38. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. The title of the message is Anna, a woman of distinction. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then, verse 37, as widowed to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Verse 38, and at that very moment, she came up and began to give thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Lord, please help us as we study today. The context of this encounter was Anna um, had been in the temple and Jesus had been brought by Mary and Joseph to be dedicated. It was required of the law that every Hebrew child be brought before the Lord, male at 33 days, female at 66 days, to be dedicated to the Lord. Mary and Joseph, being upstanding Jewish participants and uh, having a lineage that was very holy and religious, knew that they needed to do this because this child, if any child was special, this one was. And so there he was brought. Now nobody knew who he was, meaning Jesus, except Mary and Joseph. How would you explain this to people? How special this child was. It took a little effort, and even if you tried to explain it as best as possible, nobody would believe you. So they brought Jesus, as any parents would, to the temple. And it says that when they brought him, that they brought two turtle doves. You had to bring a sacrifice when you brought your child. The sacrifice represented that you were asking God and petitioning him to please move on this child's behalf. And you were giving something in place of the life of the child. This is what sacrifice, animal sacrifice was about in uh, the Old Testament. And even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are New Testament books, they are, they are, they are happening in an Old Testament covenantal period, meaning Jesus had not died. And the, the central demarcation point for all of Scripture in terms of saying what is new covenant and old is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus really lives in the old covenant reality along with everybody else who's in the New Testament because he has not yet died. 
And so Old Testament regulations still apply. And in the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices. And the animals represented the sacrifice of the very life of the person who was giving the sacrifice. The rule was you needed to bring a lamb for a child. And if you didn't have a lamb, you couldn't afford one, then you could bring two turtle doves. And so Mary and Joseph brought two turtle doves, signifying their economic standing in life, their station. They didn't have a lot. And if you brought two turtle doves, generally you didn't announce yourself when you came in because you didn't want everybody to know how not well off you were. So if anything, Mary and Joseph were doing as as best they could to not be seen. And all of a sudden, in the readings before, in the paragraphs before, we see this guy named Simeon, and we'll read about him later. And Simeon comes in and says, This is the one I've been waiting for all my life. God told me I wouldn't taste death until I saw this one. Wow! Mary and Joseph didn't make him known. Simeon was just a a man of great insight. And he saw the special child who was Jesus. And he began to say some stuff. Then Anna, here we read Anna comes. We don't know what relationship Simeon and Anna had. But we do know that they probably knew one another and that the temple was not a large place. And if two people had similar tendencies to see and feel things that no one else can see and feel, they would probably bounce things off one another. What do you think the Lord's saying today? Anything he's moving in your life about? Don't know exactly what the relationship was, but we do know that they were in sync on this point. Anna came up later and said, oh my goodness. This here is the one amazing. And we're going to study Anna a little bit. Two things we're going to talk about. One, how challenged she must have been. And then two, how communicative she became. It says that she was married seven years and then lived as a widow to the age of 84. And that she served in the house of God day and night. Now, when you, when you read scripture, you, you really have to understand the spirit of it, not just the words. Everything in this, this book we call the Bible is the word of God breathed by him and then penned by man. I love it. It is holy and it is pure. But I do not take it literally all the time. That doesn't mean I don't take it for real. Literally means I understand what the writer is trying to convey, not just what he's putting in print. So when it says that she was there day and night, it doesn't mean she didn't have a house. It didn't mean she didn't go home. It was hyperbole for this woman seems like she never leaves the church. She's there on Sunday. She's there on Monday, Tuesday. She's there on Wednesday night. She comes to prayer on Fridays. I mean, she's always there. Now, when you say she's always there, you don't mean she lives here. You mean she's there so much that she cares like few do. That's what it means day and night. She loved the house, loved it. And it says that she was married seven years, but it doesn't define her by her husband. It defines her by her father. Seven years and then... Lived as a widow to the age of 84. 
We don't hear anything about her children, if she had any. And back then, women married very young. And it wasn't unusual for a woman to be widowed very young. Because the man to whom she was wed generally had to save up enough money to be able to purchase the rights for her hand in marriage. It was called the bride price. We signify it today, although people would like to just break it down and and say, well, he paid for it. That ain't right. She's a person. (laughs) Yeah, let a man ask you and not put a ring on it. You just a person. You don't need a ring. That's all our rings are today is signifying the value that we put on you and the ability for us to provide in the days to come. That we are setting you apart from every other person on the planet as the one to whom we are going to give all of our attention. That's what that means. The bride price meant that and much more. It was an amount that was given to the father and the father then would, would use it as compensation for all of the resources that he spent in order to raise his child and for all of the resources that he would not get from her useful labor in the days to come. If the woman was of high standing, the price would be higher. Lower standing, lower. We don't know exactly who Phanuel was, but we do know that he was of the tribe of Asher. And Asher represented the the tribes that were in the northern kingdom. Now, a little bit of Bible history. You had two kingdoms that made up Israel. A southern kingdom called Judah, a northern kingdom called Israel. This northern kingdom and southern kingdom, generally speaking, didn't get along very well. These two kingdoms came into being as a result of Solomon's disobedience, who was David's son. David was the second king of Israel, but the best. His son Solomon was the wisest. Once David died, Solomon took the throne. Solomon then ruled pretty well for the first 20 years, and the second 20, not so well. As a result, God said, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I'm going to leave you two tribes, but ten are going to the north. And a man... God raised up, literally, to take ten tribes to the north. His name was Jeroboam. And he set up a kingdom in a place called Samaria. They had poor reigns. R-E-I-G-N-S. Poor kings. Really bad. Not one good king in the north. A bunch of good kings in the south, but all bad in the north, save one who really couldn't be considered bad. He... The only reason he's not considered bad is because he didn't do bad intentionally. He just just didn't do as good as he should have done. But that's about as good as it got. Out of a ten, the best king was a four. His name was Jehu. Everyone else was a mess. And so in 712 B.C., this split happened somewhere around 960 B.C. In 712, some 250 years later, God sent the Assyrians from the north and dispersed all of the northern kingdom. Every one of them just took them and said, didn't even bring them to one cohesive spot. Just said, you will no longer be a people. That was the sentiment of the Assyrians. Asher was a part of that dispersion. The tribe of Asher. Now Asher was on the Mediterranean coast in the north part of Israel, northern part of Israel. So when you see somebody who has survived that kind of dispersion and now winds up still identifying with their people in Israel, now in Judah, something 
of a real pull of their history is important to them. And ladies, even though it's not specifically saying this, I want you to understand something. And gentlemen, you're going to have to listen with right ears when I say what I'm about to say. Because you may be mad at me afterwards, but that's okay. You'll be all right. This woman was not defined by her husband, but by her father. My wife has my last name. She enjoys it. She likes to be related to me like that. She considers it an honor. And it's the most valuable thing I can give her in terms of identification. It's not a, it's not a thing of ownership. It's a thing of oneness. How in the world can we be unified? Yet she's not defined by me. She's defined by her father. She's got her own relationship with God. She's known as a daughter of the Almighty, not just the wife of Brett. Ladies, how are you defined? What's your relationship look like with the Father? Can people, because Anna's not saying this is who I am. Now, when, person, when a person tries to convey that, sometimes it doesn't come out quite right. It seems like they're saying, I don't want to identify with that. I want to identify with that. You can do both. You just need to have your priorities in line. You are a daughter of Almighty God before you are anything else. Before you are Latina, before you are African American, before you are Caucasian, before you are Asian, you are a daughter of Almighty God. And then you get to relate to everybody else on the basis of that identity. How are you defined? Anna was defined by her father, not just her husband, not even by her children. And most mamas, I'm telling you, when they get to the babies, they feel fulfilled and all things are well. And now they've come into what they were called to be, what they were called to do. And the empty nest thing is not a happy moment for a lot of them. May I say that's not the case in my house. <laughs> we are looking forward to empty nest. Please go. Cynthia and I feel like we've done our job. We've done our job. The children don't think so. Or that's not to say they don't think we did a good job. They just don't think we're finished. They still want more from us. Mainly money. But her life, even though she homeschooled every one of them for 23 years, her life wasn't wrapped up in her kids. She's not defined by those seven people. She's not defined by me. She's amazing. That woman, y'all don't know my wife. She's pretty. She's elegant. She speaks well. She's tough. That woman is tough, and she has a relationship with God. I'm telling you what, she's the best Christian in our house. She's defined by her father first, and we all respect that. An amazing woman. Ladies, I beg you, find your definition in God. Find your definition in God. And when you do, the people around you who are most close, when they mess up, it won't mess you up. Oh, you'll be concerned. It, 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 it'll, it'll hit your soul a little bit. But you won't go through this identity crisis because the people around you will mess up just like you'll mess up for them. At some point, somebody's going to do you wrong. 
And if you try to figure out how in the world you can find your identity through a child that obeys perfectly, good luck. They, they will embarrass you. You can't have your identity wrapped up in that little human being. Impossible. You'll go back and forth as being good and bad, good and bad, good and bad. Then what did I do wrong? Oh, I did that right. What did I do wrong? I did... No, 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 no. You find your identity in God. Whether your husband treats you right or not, you find your identity in God. You wake up every day knowing that you are secure. You're cared for. You are loved. You are defined, called and drawn close to him. She was defined by her father. And she went through some difficulty. Now, if you're married, very young, as, as I said, it, it, you had to save an, a man had to save up enough money to get to the spot where he could marry a woman of distinction. And um, so it was common for a man to be 35 and 40 and a woman whom he was marrying be 15. Why the disparity? Not just in age for, for the man, but why marry so young? Because you wanted to marry a woman who could bear you as many children as possible. And so the idea was get them as young as possible, therefore they can have more. And if, if you only had three, that, that was a few. For us, it's, that's big. But they were looking at 12, 13... 14. My wife is one of 13. She's number nine. Number nine. And so they wanted to marry him young, so you had this disparity. Well, the average lifespan of a man back then was about 52 to 54. That's it. So for the most part, the woman had 15, maybe 20 years. Then her husband was gone, and she was young. This was a little bit more unusual in that she was only married seven years. What do you do when you're whole, especially back then, not so much today. You've got your own careers, ladies. Life is different. You actually have gone to college and developed an identity around that which you do, and, and you can earn your own money and got your own house and your own apartment. I'm happy for it. And I pray that all the equality things that you would desire are yours in our society. Back then, it was not the case. You depended on that man for survival. There was no place you could go to get a job. You could become a seamstress if you wanted, or maybe cook for somebody, or maybe lend yourself out, out as a servant. But there was no resume to print up, nor was there anybody to give it to. Boy, you talk about challenged. What do I do now? I'm 23 and a widow? Do I need to look for another husband? That's what I need to do. I need to find another man who will provide for me. Oh, no. She, she said, no, I'm going to find God. I'm going to find God in the midst of this. Now, I'm not advocating that if some tragedy happens whereby you find yourself in a difficult spot beyond that which you can fix on your own, that somehow you don't revert back to maybe finding another spouse. I'm not talking about that. There are no hard and fast rules here I'm trying to communicate. What I am trying to communicate is through her challenge, she went to the house of God. She went to her heavenly father and says, what do I do? Help me. Where is your place of refuge and challenge, ladies? I beg to God it's not in a bottle. It's not in some comfort outside of the spirit. 
Some place where you find some degree of, of solace. Any place other than God. Don't let it be that. You run to God. Now I'm primarily speaking to the ladies this morning. But gentlemen, don't you dare tune out. Because the same principles apply to you. Where do you go when you find difficulty facing you? That of, that of which you cannot overcome on your own. You better not go to any place other than the presence of Almighty God. Now, I don't know what prompted this woman to do what she did. Because you can find God in your house, your particular house, where, your, your address. But she said, not only do I want to live a pious life, one now that is set apart for him, but I want to do it in the presence of God where everybody knows he is. She gave herself to church work. She said, I'm not going to let this challenge drive me far from God. Oh, the bitterness that sets in when people get disappointed. When life did not turn out the way you wanted. When things were not according, going according to your plan. God, where are you? Why did you let this happen? I can't believe you allowed me to go through this. If you were really loving me, if you were really God, why didn't you let my husband live? Fill in the blank with the thing that has disappointed you in your life that has caused you to say, God, where were you? All of us have done it at some point to our own shame. And this woman decided, I am not going to keep asking those stupid questions. Because they're stupid. They're emotionally driven and they sound real rational at the time because you don't have any answers. But it's one thing to ask God questions. It's a whole other thing to question him. Go ahead. Ask. Lord, why did my husband die? Nothing wrong with asking. Now, you may not get one answer. But nothing wrong with asking. But it's a whole other thing to say, why did my husband die? Do you care for me? The attitude that now begins to apply qualities of neglect, oversight, not caring to God. He who allows us to breathe regularly greets us with his mercy every day. We who don't realize that because we feel entitled, we think it's our right to be able to, to wake up. And when others don't, we think God has done something wrong to not allow them to. That's how messed up we are in our thinking. We think we are so right that we deserve everything we're getting this good and surely nothing this bad. When we are sinners who are qualified spiritually as those who are criminals in the kingdom and we think somehow that, that we ought to be blessed because of our criminal activity, we've broken almost every law. You say, well, wait a minute, now I haven't murdered anybody. Jesus said, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you're already guilty before the high court of heaven of murder. God doesn't just judge on actions. He judges on ill motivation in here. We've broken every one. Every one. And somehow we think because we judge ourselves by one another that as long as I'm not as bad as a person who's actually done it, that I'm really good and God must then accept me. And he must bless me. When the standard is perfection. And all of us have fallen so far short of that kind of glory. 
And so then when it comes to life not going the way we want, because we don't understand the mercy with which we've been greeted every morning, every morning, mercy. Listen to me. You all regard me as, some, as, as being somewhat holy, a little pious, and almost every once in a while somebody will slip out a reverend brat. Not just pastor. You think I'm all that. I know what I'm not. But because I hold this position and I'm trying to live with integrity every day, I get it. But if God were to take me today as a result of my transgressions, those which I have committed, those which I, I, he knows I will, I'd be good with that. I wouldn't think foul at all. I'm just grateful I got 56. 56 great years when Brett should have been judged day one for the wrong he committed the first time he did it. So I don't have any problem with the trouble in my life. None. Am I believing for it? No. I don't want it. And so I cry out for his mercy more when it comes. And I realize that I'm a steward of his resources, and so I begin to employ that which he's given me in power to try to change the circumstances that are untoward in, in, toward me. I get that. I do that. But, but I realize I'm not worthy of goodness. But I get the privilege of wa- walking in it and beginning to express it because he has blessed me. But it's no, it doesn't come as a sense of entitlement. So when things happen that I don't, I don't expect or aren't good. There's nothing in me that says, where were you, God? I can't believe it. Why didn't you? Don't you love me? No, no, no. He proved all he needed to prove by sending his son. His son died for me. He doesn't need to do another thing for me. Not another thing. He didn't need to do that. But that's all I need to know how good he is. If I never had another blessing, that would be enough. This woman at the age of 23, she said, I'm running to you, not away from you. I'm not accusing you. I'm finding you. I'm running to you, God. Challenged, but found herself in his presence and said, I want to be so much in your presence And I want to shield myself from the worldly influences. I want to be here every day, every day in your house. What a woman. It also says that she was known as a prophetess. I I don't know. I don't know whether, you know, some stuff you get as a calling. And there's no accounting for it. You, You can't drum it up. You see somebody else walking in it. There's no way you could walk in that because God just gave it to them. He didn't give it to you. But he gave you something he didn't give to them. Just gifts. It's just there. But there's some stuff you can learn. I am not a prophet. Pastor Jim Critcher is. Pastor Danell Perkins is. This church is really blessed. When you talk about fivefold ministry, which is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the, the, the apostle, the prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, four or five-fold, however you want to put it, as pastor and teacher can be linked together. We are really blessed as a congregation in that we've got all of them. Every one of them functioning at a very high and senior level. 
I don't know a, a better prophetic team than what we've got in the world. And I travel a lot. I know a lot in the world. Now, there are better pastors than me. Sorry, you got me, though. We have evangelists and Jared and my son Garrison and others. We've got pastors and Pastor David and Pastor Paul and Pastor Stephen Law. And when, when you talk about teaching, eh, you got me again. So <clears throat> you may not have it as, as good as you like, but you got it. We, we, got, we got it all. We got everyone. And the apostolic thing, eh, some, yeah, little a apostolic But some stuff you can learn. I'm not a prophet, but I can prophesy. I can say, thus says the Lord. The Lord will inspire me and speak to me about something. And I don't know whether Anna was a prophetess before she got married or after. But I do know this, that hanging around the presence of God regularly, you begin to hear him really well. Your your ears get tuned in to that frequency. Your relationship begins to allow you the privilege of feeling and hearing things that you would not otherwise. And so she was known as a prophetess. Whether it was a download uh, as in terms of calling or whether it was a learned skill because she just stayed with them all the time, I don't know. But I want you to know, folks, the closer you get, the more people will confuse you with a lot of stuff you may not be. You hang around the house of God regularly, all of a sudden people start thinking, are, are you a minister? Yeah, no, yeah, no. No, I, I work over at the National Reconnaissance Center 9 to 5. <laughs> but you seem to be, no, but yeah, no, I'm not. They will confuse you because you hang around his presence and stuff begins to happen to you. And lastly, you have no idea what God might reveal to you. There she was, just hanging out, doing what she did every day. Just hanging out. Serving God, serving people. And Jesus shows up. Oh, you can't script it. Some Sundays, we will have worship and song here that is just cap-popping great. I mean, it's in the bottle, but it's so fizzy and wonderful and bubbly. Pow! It just comes out. You think, how did we get here? How did that happen? This is amazing worship. And it's not even that the worship team, though skilled as they are, was so incredibly skilled that day. Though they may have been, something extra came in the room. And you all feel it when it happens. It's just one of those, uh-oh, 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 what Pastor Brett going to do now? Are we going to be here all day just singing a song? Folks on the floor lying around, people crying, just, oh, it's one of those moments. You, you, you can't, Corey, I, I wish I could take it off the shelf and just bring it down. All we can do is what we can do. I prepare my messages the same way every week. I work really hard at, at studying and digging and taking out my shovel and finding out the culture and who the people were. I try to live with Anna and Simeon and Jesus and Mary in that temple. I want to know exactly what was going on. And in the 35 minutes I've got, I try to share with you as much as I know how. Why? Not just to give you information to show you I know what I know, but to help you understand what the Bible says and let you know you can read it like that too. Because all I do is read. 
all I do is read. I don't have this special thing where God shows up and says, let me show you a picture of the temple in year four. <laughs> it doesn't happen to me. I got to read. You can read. You can get as much as you want out of this Bible. So I stay in a passage to help you understand, wow, if Brett got it, I could get it. So I'm sitting there really digging as best I can. And some Sundays, it comes out great. I just think, whoa, that was good. Lord, you moved. That was amazing. I just, I just, it just flowed out of me. Like today. Some Sundays. <laughs> other Sundays, you just sit there and say, what is wrong? I'm sitting here talking to you while I'm talking to myself saying, what is wrong with me today? This isn't working at all. These people are really being kind to me. They're looking at me like this. But they're really being kind. They could be throwing stuff at me. Or putting up a four card saying, four, not too good today. You're struggling. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. But I, I, can't, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why. But I do know this, that the more I stay in his house, the more it's like today. Are you listening to me? The more I hang around him, the more it's like today. The less I hang around him, the less it's like today. So if you hang around him more, the more grace you will be to see things and hear things. You want to know how in the world Pastor Danelle or Pastor Jim or anybody you revere as being somebody who's super spiritual gets what they get? It did not come simply by them having a download when they were four. It came because they decided to hang around the house and not leave. Day and night, loving God and loving people. She saw the Christ child. Oh, and you know what she did? Not only did she overcome the challenge, 84 years of age. 84. If she was widowed at 22, 23, we're looking at 62 years of by herself and God. And you can say, but, wow, that, that must have been really lonely. That, that must have been so just all by yourself. Just, that must have been hard. And she sees the Christ child, and the first thing she does is give thanks. I hope your Thanksgiving was really good this week. I hope you had a moment of prayer with your family. I hope you thanked God for what he was doing beyond just having nice, a nice meal and friends around. I hope you thanked him for all the stuff that has occurred in your life. I'll say it again. I hope you thanked him for all the stuff that has occurred in your life. Not the good only. But thank you, Lord, for taking me through that. I didn't say, thank you, Lord, for that. I am not thankful for bad stuff that happens. I am thankful that he takes me through the bad stuff that happens and helps me become better through it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I never want to walk through it. But sometimes it is the only way to get to where I need to be. It's the only way I can get to where I need to be, the way I need to get there. The person I need to become needs to go through the valley of the shadow of death because I didn't know who I was until I went through that. 
And that reveals really who I'm not. So I can trust him more and lean on him and realize you took me through that. that thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. I came through. And some of y'all are still in. I get it. I've been in longer than I've been out. I find myself in difficulty more often than not. But I've learned how to live in difficulty. And find him and say, thank you, Lord, for the strength today to make it through. Those mountains that I cannot speak to and say, go, Lord, you're going to help me navigate through them. Thank you, she said. She began to give thanks. Thank you. Thank you for taking me through the death of my husband. Thank you for taking me through these last 62 years where... It would have been nice to have the company of somebody to talk to. But that's not, that's not that to which you called me. You called me to be this. And I want you to know I'm grateful. I'm grateful, oh God. Because I've lived this long to see this. And all these other people in here, they don't see what I see. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being a prophetess, a seer, a person who could witness this right here. You have no idea what God is allowing you to go through in order to see what he wants you to see. And then, as a result of seeing, she spoke. See, there's a message that needs to go out to everybody about who Jesus is. It doesn't just need to be carried by me or my staff, your wonderful staff. It needs to be carried by those who have seen him. Have you seen God move in your life? Has he revealed himself to you? Has he opened your eyes to notice things that others don't notice? You, if you just got saved, it's, it's, like, it's like coming into a brand new reality. Your eyes are always open now. It's like, oh, I never saw That's neat. Oh, I read that a thousand times. I never saw that. You're seeing things like you've never seen. And it's beautiful, the sight that God's given you. But don't just take it for yourself. Now you're responsible. It says she went out and began to tell everyone about the redemption of Israel. What you see, you're responsible to convey. Are you listening to me? May God give you the wisdom to say something that makes sense to others. And you do not have to be a preacher to do it. You don't have to have the vocation I have in order to make that happen. You ought to be a minister in your own right, carrying this gospel with you regularly because he has revealed himself to you. Remember, on that day, there were priests in the house. On the day Anna saw Jesus, there were priests in the house. Clergy was there. People who were paid to do what I do were there. They didn't see a thing. Not a thing. Simeon, Anna, two people who were not paid just showed up on Sunday and Wednesday night. <laughs> just kept showing up. Kept showing up because they didn't know when he might show up. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking for your grace and mercy. Please help us to be like Anna. To love you like that.